Welcome to your High Vibration Life podcast with Robin Openshaw, also known online as the Green Smoothie Girl. When you're living your high vibration life, you're healthier in every way. You're more productive, creative, peaceful, and loving. Your high vibration life is calling. And now your host, Robin Openshaw. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Your High Vibration Life. Thanks to you, this podcast has so many subscribers and so many downloads that I get to really achieve a dream, and that is I get to meet and ask tough questions of, for your benefit, today, Dr. Joel Furman, a medical doctor who was way ahead of his time in helping his patients understand the benefits of eating plant foods rather than animal foods or processed foods, and to challenge them to eat two pounds of greens and veggies a day. I took that challenge many years ago, and it reclaimed my health and my family's health. Joel Furman, MD, is a board-certified family physician, a six-time New York Times bestselling author and nutrition researcher who specializes in preventing and reversing disease through nutritional and natural methods. Dr. Furman is an internationally recognized expert on nutrition and natural healing, and he's appeared on hundreds of radio and television shows. Through his own hugely successful PBS specials, which have raised more than $30 million for public broadcasting stations, he brings nutritional science to homes across America and around the world. Dr. Furman is a member of the Dr. Oz Show Advisory Board. He's involved with multiple nutritional studies with major research institutions across America. And this interview is going to blow your mind because it is a drink from a fire hose. Dr. Furman, it's so nice to meet you. And thank you for joining us here on my show. You were out there long before 99% of the movement for eating a more plant-based diet even really got started. And we know that medical doctors can't bill insurance codes for teaching people how to eat. So how did you come to decide in one of the most lucrative professions there is, and as conventional as I'm sure your medical education was, how did you decide to help people eat a different and better diet? Well, I didn't really start that way. Um, I was into nutritional excellence when I was a teenager on the United States World Figure Skating Team, um, competing internationally for better stamina. And then my father was overweight and sickly, and I read every health book that was available at the time, including everything that Dr. Herbert Shelton wrote in the 1950s. Um, So I decided to go to medical school with the specific purpose of becoming a physician specializing in nutrition. So I didn't adopt this um, methodology, these tools, these incredible tools to get people well when I was already a physician I went to medical school with the specific intention of being a doctor specializing in nutrition and utilized that education to add on to my otherwise self-taught nutritional education. And then I proceeded to you know, put it together from there and spend my whole life essentially reading and studying every, every nutritional study on human nutrition ever published, having read over let's say 20,000 studies and trying to put them all together into a cohesive program that leaves no stone unturned in aiding people to live their best life and live as long as possible and, with, and to reverse disease. So I actually became a doctor and chose to go to an Ivy League medical school because I wanted to um, take this different road and make sure I had the best opportunity to do so. What's it like to be a 
conventionally trained medical doctor. And for instance, tell us about, you know, 25 years ago, if you've been in practice that long versus now, how do your peers in medicine react to your focus on nutrition or your practices that are outside of that? And has it changed any in the last 25 years? Is it, is, is your profession friendlier to people who lean more holistically and nutritionally? Well, definitely I'm getting much more interest from hospitals and physicians wanting me to speak at their grand rounds and spend run courses and run events and absolutely having more interest. But I think what turned it around for me was in the first 10 years of my practice, um, I was essentially practicing almost the same way I am today, except the, I got a lot of like, what's the word, gossip, feedback from patients saying, oh, this doctor said, what, I'm going to live on carrots and celery the rest of my life and eat like a rabbit or, or, or there was some you know, suspicion people thought it was a little strange. But when I started writing books, I think that turned it around because physicians in my area and other areas could read my books, could know what I stand for and the evidence that supports my opinions. And they can't make up or concoct things that they supposedly, that I'm saying that is weird or crazy. They knew exactly what, if they wanted to disagree with me, they'd have to disagree with what I really said and not something they're, they're making believe or they twisting that I did say or didn't say. So I think that it, it, and the more books I published, the more respect and the more camaraderie and the more people I had coming on board to what my vision and viewpoints were because they couldn't really argue with the science and the logic I put forth. And in in a sense, what I'm saying is quite conservative and quite consistent. And and, and the way I, when I present to physicians, I think they can recognize that what I'm doing is much more consistent with with the overwhelming preponderance of evidence in the scientific literature. And what they are doing has much less evidence to support it comparatively to the style of practice I've adopted. And I think I could make that point pretty, um, pretty strongly and bring a lot of physicians who were exposed to my work on board. Well, that's a very good point. And, you know, I read your book, Eat to Live, oh gosh, when I was a very young mom. And your book, Eat to Live, didn't just arm me with a different way of thinking. Your meticulous documentation of the research really made me as a new mom confident to move forward eating a plant-based diet, you know, because there were people screaming at me and saying that I was going to, you know, die or kill my kid of a, of some kind of, you know, mythical protein deficiency. And so I want to thank you for your work because it gave me a lot of courage and something to go on. And I've recommended your book and bought copies of your book for so many over the years. And I'm really curious about this one, even among the holistic or functional practitioners to get people off of nuts, seeds, legumes, and whole grains and to sort of vilify them because of like anti-nutrients in them. What do you think about that trend? Are you seeing it too? Well, look, there's always going to be those people coming up with their own independent ideas and hypotheses to make themselves stand out in some different way to appeal to the masses with some fad or gimmick or trick, you know, to that's going to be a passing fad or never going to hold, you know, like there was the eat for your body top diet. That was just made up nonsense. And once that was did, it eventually lost favor, the Atkins diet lost favor for a while because there were so many long term studies showing that how dangerous it was to eat so much animal products for, you know, for, with hard endpoints like death and cancer rates. And now we have a resurgence of that way of thinking. After a while, it comes back in. But of course, 
this idea that lectins and beans and the phytates in nuts and seeds and vegetables are anti are, are somewhat anti-nutritious or lifespan shortening is another gimmick that doesn't hold that doesn't have any scientific validity to it. Let me just ex- expound on that a little bit. First of all, it, the the idea that lectins and beans were were bad and have anti-nutrients stemmed from the paleo movement because they were advocating meat-heavy diets and they wanted people not to eat grains and beans because they didn't think that um, primitive people ate beans. You know, that's an it's okay to have a hypothesis. I have nothing wrong with people having a, a guess, taking a guess on what they think might work, and have a reason why they coming to that um, idea. But then you have to say, well, where's the evidence for that? Is what if we test it? And what if we test it not just short term for a year or two, but what if we put people on beans, lots of beans long term for 20 years or more? What if we take beans away and give them more meat long term for years or more? And you know, the point is, is that we have to give more credence to studies that follow thousands of people for 20 years or more. And we have to give less credence to to ideas that follow people for a year or two. In other words, we could feed people nothing but Twinkies or chocolate chip cookies, and they can go on just a mono diet of just Twinkies, and they could do better because their triglycerides go down. They could lose weight, weight because they're so sick of eating Twinkies, they cut their calories back. But if you followed people on a diet for just Twinkies or chocolate chip cookies for 20 years, you'd see a lot of needless cancers, a lot of throat cancers, a lot of breast cancers, a lot of cardiac arrhythmias, a lot of death. In other words, a hard endpoint is, is death, heart attack, cancer. A soft endpoint might be weight loss, triglycerides go down. And we look at large studies for many years looking at hard endpoints, we see two things. Number one, that more beans need, leads to longer life. And all the blue zones, matter of fact, are populations eat lots of beans. With more, most centenarians are always in people who eat the most beans. If you look at the nurse's health study, and other studies like that that follow women who have over many years seeing their incidence of breast cancer and death from breast cancer, we see always that the women who eat the most beans have the lowest rates of breast cancer and the highest longevity, longest lifespan. And that was one of the hallmarks of the nurses' health study showing that beans were linked to lower rates of breast cancer in women. If we look at, you know, I can go on and on, but if we look at the same thing, studies that are naturally low in sugar and higher in vegetables show that those that are higher in meat versus those that are higher in non-meat sources of protein over many years, such as the the study published on 129,000 people that went on for more than 20 years, published in a 2010 issue of Annals of Internal Medicine, showed that those people with more animal products versus less had a 43% increased risk of death. That's 129,000 people. The the point is, is that I could go on with more studies, but I could essentially say that every long-term study with large numbers of people show increased death rate with higher consumption of animal products, animal protein, and lower death rate, lower cancer rate, and longer life with higher consumption of beans and of course with vegetables that are so-called high in phytates and the same thing with nuts and seeds. And matter of fact, the lectins and the phytates that supposedly bind nutrients actually have anti-cancer effects in themselves and they actually bind mercury, lead and toxic metals as well and they prevent excess nutrients like copper and iron from passing through the body. So if you're gonna eat some meat, if you're eating beans with it, 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 it mitigates some of the damage from the excess heme iron in meat that can cause damage to the body. So even eating more beans even eat, makes the meat less toxic. Um, so there's a, there's a million different reasons I can go on why that hypothesis 
is wrong and has no data to support it and is somewhat irresponsible. And there's more books and more literature and more, how should I say, internet advertisements interviewing this famous doctor from a famous university in Australia or New Zealand or they are in South or in San Francisco or this new doctor saying, don't eat this or eat, don't eat beans or don't eat, you know. And it's just really so irresponsible that these people are so poorly versed in the world's nutritional literature. They pick some idea, they pick some narrow amount of, of data to support it, and they're managing to convince their own followers just because people just want to grab onto some little magic tidbit that they think is going to be the answer to their problems. Oh, I absolutely agree. And that was a really great digest of so many of the fads. And I'm actually want to touch on a, a few more that are actually really popular right now. It's actually you who sort of educated me about the eat right for your blood type thing. And I was at the time I was, you know, seeing the diatomos making millions of dollars telling people that they had to exercise a certain way and eat a certain way based on their blood type. And you complete you just took it apart in your in your book, you know, Eat to Live. And and you know, when I'm explaining this to people, I often quote you in my own writings. Um, that, you know, all the cultures of the world, no matter where you came from, whichever continent your people adapted on, they all had all the blood types. And so thank you for that, because it clears the clutter. And I still, I still to this day get asked about that all the time. You have mentioned, just to recap, if if my readers are not familiar with the Blue Zones, Dr. Furman has mentioned the Blue Zones. It's the five cultures all over the world that Dan Beener has discovered live to be over 100 at astonishingly high rates compared to the rest of us. And what do they have in common? Just to go back to that, you, you, you touch on the Nurses Health Study, which is one of the biggest nutrition studies and wellness studies in history, very longitudinal, spanned decades. But just tell us the highlights of the Blue Zones. Well... You know, and also the blue zones are exactly what you said are areas where people have higher rates of living longer lives. And the hallmarks of the blue zones are people who naturally raise a lot of the own food they eat. They eat predominantly plants. None of them eat more than 10% of calories from animal products. They um, usually have social relationships outside of their immediate family that continue into later life. Um, they're, they're kind of at one with the earth in that they enjoy growing more of their own foods. You know, it's funny because I get such a kick. Like today I picked a lemon from my, I live in New Jersey in a northern climate, but I have a, like a, these special LED lights and a little greenhouse where I'm growing things indoors and I have my own, but I get such a kick out of growing my own food that I can eat and make myself. It's like, I'm so, it's like a little baby. I'm so proud of it. Showing it to my kids and to my wife. Look at this. I made this myself. I grew this myself. You got to taste some of it. It's like an expression. It's so much fun to grow your own foods. It gives you such a good connectivity with the earth. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of the blue zones are their areas where people are actually involved with making their own foods and, and working with the dirt, you know, being out there in the garden, in the forests, um, searching for or, or, or um, farming, you know, or making your own, some of your own food and not just buying it out of a package at the corner store, some connectivity with the earth. And of course, you know, we're saying that almost all the blue zones are areas that eat, eat beans, and nuts and seeds as well. So we're talking here about a diet, and we can go into a million reasons why beans extend lifespan. But they're but just to summarize to summarize it real quickly, they're the foods that have the highest amount of resistant starch, which gets broken down by bacteria in the gut to short chain fatty acids. In the and the fact that they're so high in resistant starch means that they're a pre a powerful prebiotic 
that promote the growth of bacteria in the gut that are needed to ferment the beans themselves and digest them. So regular eater of be- regular bean eaters have higher amounts of beneficial bacteria in their gut. And the type of bacteria that you develop in the gut from the eating of beans are very adherent to the villi that line the small intestines, forming a biofilm that scientists call the second meal effect. What it means is that when you eat an oatmeal or a mango or a banana and you're a regular bean eater, the glycemic load of that fruit or that oatmeal was decreased markedly because the bacterial biofilm slowed down the absorption of that glucose, changed it from absorption from minutes into hours, just because there was such an adherent biofilm to the villa, to the to the wall of the villa. When you take probiotics or when you take fermented foods, it doesn't have the same effect leading to the same adherency or stability of the biofilm as when you're a regular consumer of raw green vegetables, raw onion, and cooked beans. That combination, that trifecta, is particularly important and valuable for not only having their anti-cancer values, but actually keeping your glycemic load lower of the other foods you're eating. So there's a lot, we can go into more about that, but there's lots of reasons why beans are protective. And, and, and a lot of the pieces of the puzzle come together when you look at it very holistically and you see all the benefits of being exposed to bacteria from the dirt and fruits and vegetables that you eat outside and right fresh from the garden and the benefit of cooking beans and cooking mushrooms you know, together with those raw vegetables have an incredible synergistic effect. So there's a lot of natural, um, you know, a, a lot of science that explains why this works together when you do this whole program and how protective it is. I'm so glad to hear you defend legumes because there's such a, there's such a movement against it right now. I don't know if you're feeling that that groundswell, but let's, let's go from, so legumes and vegetables, there's such a huge part of my healing. I told you that I was, my son was dying, failure to thrive in and out of hospitals. Um, the, the very short story is that not only did I lose 70 pounds and ditch all 21 of my diseases and get off of six prescription medications that I was on in my mid twenties, but my son went on to, um, be a state level athlete and MVP six foot three. And it's, it's really, you get some of the credit for that. You know, I just have to say one quick thing because it's kind of cool is that, you know what, there's a guy, his name Connor Sachs, he's 18 years old. He's the best triathlete in his age group in the country today, probably going to be in the next Olympics. He's been a nutritarian since birth. I actually, what's so exciting is there's professional athletes and world-class athletes around the country now that have been following a nutritarian diet for many, many years, breaking records. And some of them have been following it since their childhood, like your son and like Connor, who's been doing it since he's born, getting just the incredible, these kids are just do, these are doing so incredibly well, these young men and women, that it's just um, what, such a pleasure to see how, they're, they're, how they've developed, you know? Well, and taking my son from failure to thrive, dying full of mucus, his whole like respiratory system, all the bronchioles filled with mucus in and out of emergency rooms to four healthy children, none of whom would ever be on an antibiotic. It's beyond proven in my mind. Now, now really quickly, probably because a lot of people haven't heard the word nutritarian. Define that. Well, you know, I coined that word nutritarian. I think it's very important because we have to have a way of calling what's a real healthy diet that's based to maximize human longevity and not have any predetermined biases, you know, that's looking to produce some philosophical agenda 
or, or an ethical agenda or an environmental agenda. It's just based on what's going to maximize human lifespan. And, and, and the same diet that maximizes human lifespan is most effective for reversing disease and protecting you against disease. So the word nutritarian just means a super healthy diet. And the nutritarian divide a diet that's rich in nutrients that humans need. A diet that, that – and a nutritarian is a person that believes that what they eat matters and we can control our health destiny. We can't just put garbage in our mouth. We have to put good things into our body and we get good results out as a result of that. And a lot of people out there are listening and they're, they're philosophical nutritarians. They agree that what you eat matters and, you, and eating healthfully makes for better health. They just don't do it, but they at least know it's right. But I'm trying to convert people into making them – actually practicing nutritarians, showing that to them that this is the most fun way to live and eat. It's the most delicious way to live and eat. It's the most, it keeps your mental outlook and you, it keeps you sharp and enjoying life and happy and getting more pleasure out of life. And it's much more um, exciting life when you have great health and you age slower and you can keep your physical fitness into your later years. So that's my job is to motivate people and to give them the information they need to really counter all this negativity, and especially the negativity from the medical profession that makes people think a drug is going to be their savior and puts poisons in their body as, and, the, and the disguising it as being health care, you know, because it's like, it's like going to your – bringing your car to the mechanic at the gas station with the oil light flashing on your dashboard because you burned it as a hole in your oil pan and he cuts the wire to your dashboard so you can't see you're losing oil and you go on driving it. If people take a pill to lower their blood pressure, go and eat the same diet, cause their blood vessels to stiffen, and it just keeps getting worse and worse. Well, they're not really seeing what's going on. But the point I'm making right now is that I think you're right. More people are getting on board, and we're getting more traction, especially among the medical profession. And I'm getting – I get a lot of – personal reward and satisfaction from speaking to and working with other doctors and, and, and nutritional researchers that are just as pumped up and passionate and exciting about this when they learn from me. You know, when they hear this stuff, information, they learn more. You know, what's interesting, I can just tell you how exciting it is for me. I'm sitting in the back of a room at a medical conference and this interventional cardiologist who does put stents and does bypass surgery on people walks on the stage and he says to the audience of physicians, he says, you know what? He says, three people affected my life the most in my, in my, my life and my career the most. My mother, my father, and Dr. Furman. Can you imagine he says that? And I affected his life. And he, and he changed his whole medical practice. And he's like not doing those procedures anymore. So imagine how like rewarding it is when you hear doctors who like literally changed their career because of my work. So, you know, just so, so exciting. Well, I have been just so excited about getting to interview you because your work has impacted my life for literally decades. And there's four children that I've raised by myself who are impacted by your work, Dr. Furman, and now they are having families of their own. So it's, it's, it really will just explode your brain when you think about the impact that we get to have. And now my career, Dr. Furman, is in a similar field, teaching people eat more plants that are cheap and easy and delicious. And it really, you're, you're just my top three, your top, top three in terms of impact on my life. So I'm so glad you've defended legumes because I see so many 
even functional practitioners taking people on the AIP diet. And I'm sure that there's good things about the AIP diet. You know, we're all friends, right? We're all trying to teach people to eat whole foods and we line up more than we disagree. But just for the fact that I get asked this so often and your answers are so dialed in in terms of all these issues, I'm so glad you talked about how phytates and oxalates and and lectins, all these anti-nutrients make people think that's a bad thing when you've said they're anti-cancer and they bind heavy metals and and they help create this biofilm that allow us to feel full and so many good things. Okay, I want to go to grains and I want to take on the paleo and keto diets, but really fast, how do you feel about cultured foods, all the the trend towards eating more plant-based cultured foods that we make ourselves? I think it's need it's not necessary when you eat a healthy diet and I and I and the problem with them is that there many of them are too high in salt. I'm not against them per se if you can make culture foods without salt, but I don't teach people they need to do it for good health because they simply don't. And it can help people with certain um whose diet isn't otherwise good to give them more probiotics and there are certain medical conditions where they have um leaky gut and for those people giving high dose probiotics with autoimmune diseases can be helpful. But with time that improves and the general healthy person, and I'm not saying that some people don't have individual digestive idiosyncrasies that would necessitate their diet be more um, restrictive in certain foods, may it be beans or something they're allergic to that has to be designed specifically for them. But as a whole, that's still relatively rare. And it's still relative, relatively rare that a person needs to take probiotics or to, ha- or to eat cultured foods. For, and you know, some people with, for example, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, we give them very high dose probiotics to take as a means of, and especially in the early phases of the repair process. But once, but you know, but certainly that's not something I recommend for healthy people or something necessary for healthy people. Interesting. Okay, so you've seen as one of the major fads in the last few years, if we banish grains and legumes like the autoimmune protocol and, and paleo diet and ketogenic diet do, then we are by almost forced to eat lots of meat. And so will you talk about grains? Where they fit. I mean, I see tens of millions of people all over the world eating grains, who some of the healthiest people on the planet in terms of not getting de- near, you know, degenerative disease. Talk about grains and talk about the paleo and the keto diets. Number one, you're mentioning the grain brain and wheat belly type diets where they're blaming gluten as the cause of obesity and all diseases and how everybody should be avoiding gluten, not just people who are gluten sensitive. And um, I just, and I think, and to sum it up, those books are very sloppy science and those people writing those books, I don't respect their work. They are not good at interpreting the scientific literature. I'll give you an example, perfect examples. Number one, I agree that a small percent of the population, not just people with celiac disease, but people with who have gluten intolerance, but that's still less than one in 20 people. It's still a very small percent of the population. So let's say 5% of the population should reduce their consumption of gluten-containing grains. That's what we all agree on. And we could probably figure that out and figure out that some people should not be eating gluten. But, gluten. but what they've done in their books is they've taken studies on white flour and high glycemic carbohydrates like whole wheat pastry flour. Now, when you take a, a wheat berry and you grind it into a flour, you change the biological structure of that food. Instead of it being a whole food, it's now a processed food. Instead of it being a low glycemic food, it's now a high glycemic food. Instead of it being a food that has fiber and, 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 and um, vitamin E fragments in it, it has no vitamin E fragments and, no, and almost no fiber. Even whole grains that are processed very into very finely ground flour are, are very high glycemic. The point I'm making here 
is that any high glycemic food you can look at, whether it's white rice or white rice flour or, or wheat flour or, or white flour, is linked to higher rates of cancer and higher rates of heart disease. And we know that eating these high glycemic carbohydrates that are low in nutrients or on low in fiber are a disaster. And they can be worse than eating meat even. And they're like eating sugar. But that didn't mean that they can't use that study to support their anti-gluten position. They'd, in order to, to study something to support an anti-gluten um, hypothesis, you'd have to eat low glycemic wheat products that are either sprouted wheat products or the wheat berry when it's intact or like, an, or like steel cut oats before, it, before it's cut into wheat oat flour. And I'm not saying steel oats have gluten, they don't. But the point I'm making is you can't study oat flour and then criticizing steel cut oats for the studies that were done on oat flour. You can't, take, you can't even take studies on flour, even whole wheat flour, and justify, um, and justify an exclusion or a blame of gluten because it's not the, the gluten that's the bad part. But anyway, so I'm saying here that, is that what those, what's those books did is they took studies on white flour and they showed they had negative effects and they said gluten was the reason for the negative effects. And so white flour has negative effects on everybody proportional to its inclusion in the diet. Even white rice is increased, is associated with increased risk of breast cancer. Of course, if your diet is largely vegetables and white rice is 40% of your diet, it's not so bad, but as you in, put more oil and more meat in there, or as you would put increase more sugar and other high glycemic foods and more, more white rice, then things get worse. It, it crosses a threshold of danger. And likewise, adding white flour products can cause your otherwise suboptimal diet. And that's where these books went wrong because they really don't, haven't, haven't reviewed the, liter, the, the vast evidence in the, in the scientific literature to come to their opinion. They were too quick to write a book and to promote their opinion without knowing enough about the whole subject matter, including you know, the, the difference between oil and like walnut oil to a walnut or sesame seed oil to sesame seeds or coconut oil to coconut. These people write books about nutrition and they've got a very poor exposure to the scientific literature. And you have to have a very comprehensive, you have to devote your life many, many years to studying the evidence before you hopefully put a book together. Because these books could drag people in the wrong direction without proper understanding of the science, of the, of the, of the comprehensive amount of science we have available on these subjects today. The same thing is true with the paleo. They're against grains, which I'm uh, probably also, oh, you asked me more about grains. I'm also against grains proportionally to the degree that they were processed before people eat them. I like people to eat some unprocessed organic corn, but the corn they made, you know, a thousand years ago wasn't as sweet as the corn today, and they ate it in an unprocessed form. When we eat, you know, the same thing with regard to the potatoes that were grown a thousand years ago were smaller, more colorful, higher fiber, more fibrous, and not as even glycemic as the potatoes we eat today. And when you eat grains in their primitive form, people pick them off the grain, they crush them with a stone, they cook them in water. They, you know, they, you know, in other words, we, the way we process grains and we remove the outside kernels so our grains are, so mostly it's, it's the degree of processing. And we can process soybeans and make it into um, soy milk and then make the soy milk into tofu, which is not as healthy as eating tempeh and edamame, but then we can take it and process it further into isolated soy protein and make soy bacon and soy turkey and soy protein drinks, which now becomes not even 
um, a, a semi-processed foods. It comes to be a highly processed foods that can have more negative effects. But that, but showing studies on the negative effects of, process, of highly processed soy, like waste, like isolated soy protein, does not make soybeans a bad food. It just makes the highly processed foods a bad food. This is what researchers, these people that write books do, and people on the internet do all the time. They'll pull a study on some highly processed version of that food, and because of the detrimental effect of that couple of studies that was done on the highly processed version, they'll put a blanket, a negative blanket on the food in general, which is just not reasonable. Mm, very, very helpful. All right. So tell me what you think of the two reigning dietary fads right now. I certainly get hate mail every time I take on the paleo diet, which I don't believe represents anything close to what paleolithic men were eating. What do you think of paleolithic and, and why keto? Why would it even matter if it did? Right. <laughs> it didn't even matter if it, you know, that's exactly what you're saying is that paleolithic man is, a, you know, our ancestors were the, whether they be Early man, early near people who are near man, near man, other primates, other man in other area eras, whether their diets were all different around the world where they lived. We managed to survive on different things. The question is what the, that people ate. They managed to eat just whatever they could to survive and reproduce. The question is, is what we could we eat to, per, to push the envelope of human longevity? That's the question. How could we develop, you know? So that, again, it's a hypothesis. And the hypothesis doesn't even make sense, you know, but nevertheless, let's consider it, even if we considered it a relatively intelligent hypothesis, it's still been thoroughly disproven at this point and has no validity left to it. The idea that, um, that a diet is healthier for humans if we eat more animal products in it and less plant foods, even if they're non-processed plant foods, is, you know, leading less of those still has been shown to shorten lifespan in, in so many studies. And I mentioned one published in 2010, but I, I, if I could mention one published in 2012 in British Medical Journal, which followed 43,000 women for an average of more than 20 years. And it found that what it did when this study published in British Medical Journal is they rated a diet because how as to how what percentage of animal products in the diet five percent ten percent twenty percent thirty percent forty percent fifty percent keeping in mind that that the paleo advocates are are advocating people eat more than fifty percent the um, I was in a lecture li listening to Cordain speak, and he was advocating people eat 70 to 80 percent of calories from animal products. Utterly ridiculous. And what these studies showed, and I want to make it clear, it's not the only studying I'm, studying I'm mentioning, but other studies that corroborate this study that also were long-term studies with hard endpoints of death. And these studies showed that when people ate more animal products, their risk of cardiovascular death went up more than 60% compared to people eating less than 10% of calories from animal products, comparing 30% to 10%, heart attack rates went up more than 60%, death rate went up more than 60%. And the death rate was higher by, the death rate went up. And they scored each diet on a one to 20 scale and death rates went up by 2% for every 1% increase in animal, every 1% increase not 1%, I'm saying it wrong. Every score of one, from one to 20 rating of all animal products, in other words, people with the highest animal product consumption, their diet score was a 20, and people with the lowest was a one, and people with the mid-range was a 10, but 15 was higher, 
above 15 to 20 was more like paleo, but the, the 16, 17, 18, 19 were higher than 30%, 40%, 50%. The 20s were more like 60 or 70%, really higher. And the, we saw a tremendous increased death rates in people following low sugar, high animal product diets. And we saw death rates increase by dramatic increases as animal products increase in the diet. What I'm saying right now is that whether it's cancer rates, another study published in this in 2014, following 50 to 65 year olds for 18 years, showed a 400% increased risk in cancer deaths in those following more animal products. And the more animal products are only 30% in that case, over 30%, the American diet is 33%. We're taught, what I'm saying here is that the paleo advocates are not just irresponsible, it's, re, it's really almost criminally negligent in causing death because we have so many long-term studies showing that diets that are that animal product rich, how even more deadly they are than the percent of animal products eaten by most Americans. It's the worst possible advice people could be following. And almost all nutritional scientists in the world reviewing this evidence, including the World Health Organization and the World Institute of Cancer Research, recommends people eat less animal protein and less and more plant foods in their diet, more fruits and vegetables and beans and nuts and seeds in the diet. The evidence is, is incontrovertible today that we have to eat diets of the higher of natural plant foods. That's it. And, and usually almost all nutritional scientists agree with that unless they have some you know, predetermined association or they work for some um, food industry that's promoting eggs or they work for some industry that are competing against the vegetable industry. We hope independent scientists, they all agree the evidence is overwhelming that this paleo high animal protein nonsense, the Atkins, the Ducan, the, um, you know, the, this stuff is just irresponsible nonsense. How about... You know, I, I feel like every five years we need a, you know, industry needs a new Trojan horse to bring in so that they can put billions more in processed foods obsessed with macronutrients and grams of protein. How about putting your body into constant ketogenesis? How are you feeling about the ketogenic diet? Oh, it's, it's another, I know it's a popular fad right now. And you know what they're also promoting along with the ketogenic diet is the eating of oil. Like, you know, coconut oil and olive oil because you're not going to – you get the, – the word ketogenic means your body produces ketones because it's carbohydrates, starved from carbohydrates. And the brain can use only – the brain is designed to function on glucose in a normal state. In an emergency situation, the brain can – you know, after we can, we can break down fat um, – sorry, we can break down protein to make glucose to fuel the brain. But the brain, but if there's still no carbohydrate coming in for long periods of time, the brain wants to conserve muscle tissue. So it goes into a protein sparing kind of like emergency state where it starts to accept ketones as an alternative energy fuel. So brain cells can function on ketones instead of glucose. In doing so, it's the body becomes very acidic or acidotic. And, but in any case, ketones are acidotic. They age us fat, they age the kidney. The brain can function on ketones and it may be true some year. We may sometimes discover that a certain type of cancer, like a certain type of brain cancer may be receptive to some degree to a ketogenic diet, but we don't have that data, data available today. All we have available today is to know that ketogenic diets are low in phytochemicals, they're low in fiber, they're high in calories, they're, they acidify the body, they promote aging of the body, and they promote certain aging of the kidney, aging of the liver, they prevent the body to, to re, for DNA repair, because don't forget, 
that a lot of our cells, because people are eating processed foods, diets low in um, plant foods and have low phytochemical stores. In other words, we have populations that universally and ubiquitously have low levels of antioxidants and phytochemicals in their tissues. And I measure these all the time. And the low levels of phytochemicals and antioxidants in your tissues prevent the cells from repairing the DNA and prevent taking, you know, the cross links that are damaged, the epigenetic changes, the methylation defects that accumulate and lead to cancer as they accumulate. And your body has the cellular machinery to reverse that damage to prevent cancer, that they're fueled by these phytochemicals, the, the natural ability of the body to cleanse itself is fueled by these high phytochemical intake. And the brain doesn't have a high ARE functioning. They need a constant exposure to bioflavonoids and antioxidants to keep the brain cells from aging. So the ketogenic diet is a diet low in phytochemicals, high in ketosis, acidifies the body, and, and, and it interferes with cellular repair and allows cellular machinery, allows the defects in the cells to continue to accumulate. And, and tells people they can eat coconut oil and olive oil and more fat and more butter and more this, but you know, it's essentially the opposite of what the anti-aging community has proven is that the less concentrated calories we eat, the more we eat high nutrient, low calorie diets, rich in phytochemicals and antioxidants, less calories, it's the opposite. It's saying that instead of eating high on the nutrients density line, eating more foods that are nutrient rich and lower in calories like green vegetables and berries, to eat more oil, which has almost no nutrient content, you know, and, and less foods that are highly full of phytochemicals like berries and, 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 and green and orange and red vegetables that are, have carbohydrate in them, especially things like peppers, you know, and tomatoes and onion and garlic and green vegetables and, 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 and different colorful vegetables that are more that are higher in starch and beans, which are higher in starch. So they're trying to reduce the starch out of the diet so to make you go into ketosis. And in doing so, they're, they're taking away some of the most powerful longevity promoting foods and anti-cancer foods that are on, in our, on the dietary landscape and already been proven to radically extend human life. There's no studies that show that ketogenic diets over the long term have reduced um, have extended human lifespan. And we're talking here, you have to give credence to studies that have hard endpoints. And those hard endpoints are death and cancer and heart attacks, not improvements in, um, in weight or, or um, triglycerides or even diabetic parameters that are short term. Now, my nutritarian diet that's very rich in, in nutrients and is relatively low glycemic, by the way, as well, has also been shown right to it to cause 90% of diabetics to become non-diabetic. And it reduces AGE formation. Those are AGEs are advanced glycation end products that form from high glycemic diets. So essentially what I'm saying right now is I'm agreeing with something in the paleo and ketogenic communities. I'm agreeing that high carbohydrate, low nutrient diet, low fiber diets are lifespan shortening. And I'm agreeing that some of the most popular vegan diets that are very high in carbohydrates and low in fat are not lifespan favorable because their fat intake is too low to facilitate maximum phytochemical absorption. And elderly people who lose protein ability to digest proteins in later life, that aren't gonna thrive on some of those high, pro, high carbohydrate, high glycemic vegan diets. I'm saying that a high glycemic, low extra low fat vegan diet is not going to be ideal for lots of toddlers and lots of the elderly and many people in their middle ages. It's not going to throw as broad a net as a nutritarian diet and be more favorable for people. And there's some legitimate criticism 
of some of these diets advocated in the vegan community. The, and these vegan gurus are open themselves up to criticism because they're not telling people to take these proper fatty acids like omega-3 and DHA. And they're not telling people that glycemic effect has any role to play. Or they're not telling people that you need to, that IGF-1 can get too low in later life if there's not enough protein in their diet. And we have to, and that's where a nutritarian diet shines because the inclusion of beans and green vegetables and hemp seeds and walnuts Nuts and you know and um, macadamia, whatever it is, the 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 variety of high nutrient, high protein, higher fat plant foods takes away those problems and makes it so people aren't going to have failure to thrive on a vegan on a on a vegan diet or a diet that's close to vegan or a diet that's low in animal products. And I just want to clarify that I'm not saying everybody has to be on a vegan diet because some people can lower their diet, their animal product consumption to very low levels and still be favorable. And some rare people do need a little bit of animal products in their diet to thrive because they don't function as well on a total vegan diet. So I just wanted to also make that clear. Oh, this has been a wonderful masterclass in so many topics related to our wellness and nutrition. I want to put one more question for you, and that is food aside. You get asked about food every day. You've been such a pioneer in the plant-based and whole foods movements. What else have you learned about life that you love teaching about these days? Just an actionable thing or two that has made a big difference for you in your, not just your health, but your happiness. What would you share with us? You know, I think that there's so much to speak of there and I, you know, so much to share here, but I, I just have to say it, it has to do with, um, and I think everybody knows this, it has to do with kindness and goodwill for other people, and feeling that you are protecting your own health and well-being when you're actively trying to seek out ways to be useful to other people. And you're hurting your health when you're doing things that hurt other people. So it doesn't matter how much that how people see you. It doesn't matter what people think of you. It doesn't help your health and your well-being to try to look good in the eyes of others. That's really almost irrelevant. What matters is how you feel about your own efforts and your own self and your ability to be useful to other people. That's what matters, how you see yourself and whether in you're seeing yourself, whether you have legitimate reasons to feel good about your own efforts in being useful to other people in your immediate world and, of course, in the world where your fingertips end. So, yeah, I'm saying that we can enjoy so much pleasure from this earth and being And having a good life means that we live here with a main purpose to be happy in life. That's our major purpose, not to feel sorry for ourselves. Our major purpose is to be at one with others and the universe around us and to to appreciate the world, to protect it, and to protect other living things simultaneously. And it makes us really have a life that we can feel good about. Mm. Dr. Joel Furman, you've given us some good news and good inspiration about what it is to be alive and to be happy and healthy living on the planet today. Thank you so much for being part of our show today. I so appreciate you. Oh, thank you, Robin. Appreciate the opportunity here. 